0: The Free for All Roundtable.
1: Brought to you by Lexus Avon, Canada's newest Lexus dealer, near Canada's wonderland in the Maple Auto Mall. Luxury is closer than you think.
2: Round one.
1: On round one, Sabrina and Angie is here, Queen's Park Observer, journalist, co founder of The Line, an online magazine, Matt Gurney, and John Burnside, Toronto City Councilor and newly minted word smith. So we'll just have to bend an ear and listen for today's word. If you can shoehorn it in somewhere? It's coming. It's coming in the, uh, the article about uh,
3: Doug Ford's government spending.
1: Yeah, all right. Well, let's set that aside for a moment because I wanted to talk about a few other things. Um, I think we can start with Toronto police flagging rising anti-Semitism. And we've touched on this over the last few weeks that there just seems to be this uh, tension in the city. Matt Gurney, I'll start with you on this one. Uh, I mean, the figures are staggering if you want to get into the percentage bump in anti-Semitism in this town. And it takes all forms.
2: I think the figures are underreported. am just talking with uh, friends of mine. In, in my line of work, John, and the same as yours, um, you, you need to really work hard to filter rumors and anecdotes from things that are actually happening, because you hear that someone heard from someone else, that someone heard from someone else, and you, you kind of have to discount that, but just hearing things I'm mean, uh, directly from people who are involved. Um, slurs being shouted, graffiti being left, um, unusual knocks on the door late at night, things like that. These are coming right from people I do know directly. And one of the things I ask them every time I hear it is, have you called the police? Have you filed a report? Some of the time, the answer is yes. And I know that since the police have introduced the new streamlined reporting system, I think that some people probably are more willing to report. But over the last month, John, more than once, I've I've just been, I've asked that question, and I've gotten a shrug back, and someone said, what am I going to do, file a report, and they're going to call me and tell me not to worry about it. There's a lot happening in the city that is not being reported. And John Burnside,
1: you can be angered or grief-stricken at the plight of Palestinians and babies on respirators and all kinds of things. It doesn't mean you can randomly shout at Jewish people on the streets of Toronto.
3: Yeah, and what's so disturbing is that people are making the the, uh, the connection between Israel and Jews as if they're one in the same uh, you know when we saw the um, the Russians in, invade Ukraine yes there was sporadic targeting of, of, of Russians but it was mostly against Putin and the Russian government. It wasn't against, there were no mass demonstrations against uh, Russians living in Toronto. So just on its surface, it's so obvious that there's uh, a very different set of standards used and everyone seems to, not everyone, but a, a large number of Torontonians seem to think it's okay to target to target Jews because of what's going on in Israel and Palestine.
1: Yeah, and Sabrina, I guess it it sort of emboldens some people to think that there are, for example, you know, there might be war crimes being perpetrated by Israeli defense forces. Ergo, you can bring out your old-fashioned anti-Semitism on any any terms.
0: Yeah, I, I think my co-panelists sort of hit the nail on the head on this point. And, and I would add that, yes, you know, it's not... Outright anti-Semitism to be criticizing Israel's actions as a state, but what we've seen it sort of morph into here and around the world has just been, you're right, this this blanket anti-Semitism where you know criticism of in- Israel somehow becomes boycotting Jewish businesses, and I do think that this is just the tip of the iceberg. These stark numbers that we're seeing, you know, over a hundred percent increase in in hate calls since this conflict began, um, but I, I think what it's going to come down to in the long run is education. And so I think that the Ford government in particular, you know, expanding this mandatory Holocaust education in grade school, like that's sort of what I'm looking at as the long fix for this, because it really seems like, you know, this conflict happening in the Middle East is is never ending. And really, you know, how we can kind of, you know, fix things for the future generations are going to be education. I mean, I don't really see a solution in in the short term right now.
1: Looks like the Ford administration would like to see more people getting tickets on MetroLinks for fare evasion. And I know in the coverage we're looking at here, John Burnside, people talk, well, that's setting a quota. I don't care. If you're if you're a fare jumper, then I'd really, you know,
3: <laughs> knock yourself out. You're going to get caught. Yeah. And I know from the TTC situation, uh, fare evasion is epidemic. Um, it, the But here's the thing. These fare inspectors have one job. It's enforcement. They walk around all day they alone. You have to have some metric. You know, go over to the, I heard you speak earlier about the police and they, their quota for traffic tickets. To set the record straight, it was a loose quota, but even let's call it a quota, it was one a day in a 10-hour shift. When you were a patrolman. Correct. Yeah. If you're driving around in a car for 10 hours and you don't see one offense in a day, what exactly are you doing? And I think it's the same thing here. But to the Metrolinx issue specifically, I think it's also an indication of how many they've done the data, they've crunched the numbers. When they want um, you know 6,000 tickets and 120 inspections a month, that tells us. There's a big problem with fare evasion.
1: Okay, Sabrina, some people are saying, yeah, but this is going to target racialized people. Well, not really. If they do what they do on the Up Express, which is verify every single person in the car, then bring it on.
0: Yeah, I think for folks reading and and finding out about this story, uh, they they probably are concerned about, you know, potential bias here that passengers, uh, you know, who are vulnerable people of color, they might be targeted. But and I think that's, you know, right for advocates to point out this potential for bias here. But I do think, you know, that. I was happy to hear Metrolinx is providing anti-bias training, but I think at the end of the day, these fair enforcement officers should just be checking everyone's ticket, and that way we're not singling people out, you know, based on how they look, what they're wearing, or or so be it. So I do think, you know, everyone should be paying for their ticket, and everyone, uh, you know, everyone should be subject to to ticket checks for this.
1: Yeah, Matt Gurney, I mean, when people are profiled for driving a car, that does mean that you're a black man driving a luxury vehicle. You're going to get pulled over all the time, Uh, but somebody going through a rail car and uh, asking everybody to prove that they paid, I don't see that as particularly invasive.
2: No, me neither. I agree with everyone on the panel here, and it it strikes me, guys, as something akin to baby in bathwater, right, because all of us know that there are racial disparities in policing. I think we're probably going to talk about it in a couple of minutes about uh, cannabis Mm -hmm. here. Like, we're we're all grown-ups here. We understand that this is a problem, but I don't get morally offended when I try to walk into a Leaf game and someone asks me to show my ticket first. Like, it is important that we actually make sure people are using the things that they have paid for. That is how a society works here. We need to come up with some way of doing it that, you know, maximizes the good of making sure people have paid for the services and minimizes the bad of things like racial disparities and enforcement here. And what everyone here on the panel has said is bang on. Make it a standard policy that everyone gets their ticket verified. We got two problems that go, away at that point
1: okay so i'm going to stick with you for a second matt gurney you mentioned this uh, particular feature and let's unpack it it was a feature done in the pages of the toronto star with analysis of considerable amount of data as concerns cannabis enforcement and their assertion is that enforcement seems to happen in neighborhoods that have more visible minorities and i suppose some people would argue well that's you know maybe there's just more cannabis use there but still it does seem a bit suspicious
2: I think that was my exact response, because in the feature, the, uh, the star does acknowledge there are limits to the data. Uh, the data on enforcement, it does not itself include racial statistics. So the star is working backward a bit. And I, I think I broadly accept their findings, but I think it's just important to note this because they themselves flagged it. They can't actually tell us whether or not the enforcement is directly targeting people from racial minority groups. What they can do is look at where the enforcement is happening and look at the demographics of the neighborhoods, and I think in general, I, I do find that compelling. I, I think, like as the star said, it's a pretty clear signal in the data here, and I'm not shocked to discover this. I'm a little bit dismayed to discover this, but I, I guess I kind of have to live in the real world. One of the main arguments that really persuaded me about the need to legalize cannabis was the inequities in the enforcement and the fact that cannabis was used as basically a, a gateway offense, so to speak, not just a gateway drug, uh, drug but a, a gateway offense that gave law enforcement officers an opportunity to um, interact with, aka HASSLE, members of visible minority groups. So the, the star shows that the numbers have dropped by about 95%, like in terms of the actual interactions that are happening at all. But to discover that the remaining 5% are happening largely in racialized neighborhoods does not shock me.
1: Okay. John Burnside, I think the thing that surprises me
3: most is I didn't know we
1: had cannabis in four- Anymore.
3: Yeah, I mean, they, they talk about provincial tickets where it's like open cannabis in a car. So let's just discount that. The federal the federal charges are largely about dealing. And so two things. One thing they talk about are, are cannabis stores. More cannabis stores are being uh, charged in racialized communities. But we don't know who the owners are. Are we making the assumption that, oh, it's a cannabis store in a racialized community, so it's a racialized person that's actually operating it? big jump, uh, no data. Um, the other thing is that, you know, a lot of police enforcement these days is very much street level. And, you know, they, they compared Side Bennington to another community. Well, there's not a lot of street level activity in some of these other areas. The police do interact on this street level in some communities where they have higher crime rates and where there's more violence. So, you know, they, they talk about the just the enforcement of cannabis dealing, but they don't talk about the actual level of criminal activity in the, in the communities themselves. Okay, in the time we have left, I want to jump to something that's very
1: much in Sabrina's wheelhouse and also could stimulate a, an invocation of the word of the day. Uh, Sabrina, this is a Fraser Institute analysis that insists that our Conservative government here in the province of Ontario is just as prone to spending as the previous Liberal administration.
0: Yeah, I'm sure Doug Ford is not happy about that one. I mean, this has been a total 180 for him, right? Like since he came to power, decrying the gravy train, wasteful liberal spending, he made big cuts, cuts was pilloried for it, then the pandemic hit and that sort of derailed these plans to balance the books. Um, But since then, we've seen the premier become a big spender. In fact, the biggest spender in provincial history. And I do think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. We're still in recovery mode. There's not much appetite for austerity. Um, But but policy-wise, I don't think the deficit is getting that much bigger compared to recent history I mean 5.6 billion isn't chump change we do have a path to balance conveniently just before the next election Um, but I I do think a lot of this specifically in the last you know mini budget that we got has to do with the new infrastructure bank which is three billion dollars to help bankroll the conservatives ambitious capital plan highways transit lines that sort of stuff they don't come cheap and there's also these huge multi-billion dollar contingency funds that the province has set aside to be used for potential legal disputes so I I do think you kind of have to read between the lines of, you know, the mini budget to see what's really going on here, but yeah, you know, Ford's a big spender and it's completely, you know, something different than we're used to from his brand.
1: And this brings me to my famous expression, John Burnside, meet the new Ratbag administration, same as the old Ratbag administration.
3: Exactly, and they always—they ha- all have the same path to uh, a balanced budget, but they never seem to take that path. Um, you know, the man- finance minister, Bethlen Falvey, his talk of fiscal responsibility is specious.
1: Ah, there we go. Thank you very much. Ding, ding, ding.
3: Superficially
1: plausible, but actually wrong. Thank you all. Good to have you. John Burnside, Sabrina Nangi and Matt Gurney. Catch the round table. Round one at 7 45. Round two
3: at eight forty-five. Weekday mornings on more in the morning. News Talk 1010, Toronto.